Hello and welcome back to podcast three of this series of acumen and perspicacity, which takes some pronouncing if you don't have your own teeth. Last week we're in Tel Aviv, Israel. This week we're in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I have a couple of guests lined up for us on this show. One's a special advisor, one was in the special forces. What a combination. But to start, I'm going to travel across the great oceans to my good friend who's sat right now in Sao Paulo. Welcome back, Israeli Peaky Blinder from Podcast 2, Shalom Oren. Uh, good evening, Jim. It's great to see you again. And uh, it's great that you're chasing me around the globe. Now I'm in Sao Paulo. And I'm happy to co-host this uh, podcast with you from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Thank you. You seem to get all the Gucci numbers. I'm sat here in Berkshire in my summer house, and it's absolutely hoofing it down here at the moment. Uh, in fact, I'm sat here in my slippers, would you believe? It's the first time I've seen my slippers all year. So so that's my tales of woe while you're sat in Brazil. I saw that um, beautiful backdrop from the office of one of our other guests who's going to join us tonight, and that's Diego Urez. Good evening, Diego. Good evening, Jim. Good evening, Thank you for joining us, and uh, I was really, really impressed by the view. Now, what was that from your office, those pictures that Oren was sending, or, or where was that? We're in Diego's office right now, actually, in Sidera, and the view is, if I'm not mistaken, of the Jardins area, right, which is the, one of the nicest neighborhoods here in Sao Paulo, but it's also close to the center and to the Park Ibirapuera, which is like Central Park or Regions Park. It's probably a bit more exotic than than uh, Regent's Park, I would have thought. We're not sure. It's a posh neighborhood here, and there's a lot of European immigrants who founded this city, so it's not that different as you would think. The beaches are the one, the, the thing you might be imagining, and they are exotic, but the city is, is quite modern and quite European. No, yeah. it's a cosmopolitan city. It's, yeah. it's, the, it's the biggest uh, business center of the of Latin America, maybe only with competition to Mexico City, maybe. And talking of Mexico City, uh, I know we've got another guest who's who's skulking in the background, who, who's our, our lethal weapon. Who I would probably describe as the Brazilian version of Chuck Norris meets Liam Neeson. He spends the majority of his time in some of the darker areas of Brazil, known as the favelas. Good evening, João, or Johnny, as we call you. Good evening, Jimmy. It's a pleasure talking to you and your listening people in your podcast. And thanks for joining us. It's much appreciated. So to kick off tonight's podcast, I thought we could start with Diego, who I've spoken with before. Welcome to the show, Diego. Thank you for joining us. And please tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you, Jim. My story is not as exciting as some of those guys here in the room. But um, I was born here in Brazil, in Sao Paulo. I grew up uh, until about my teenage years. Then I moved to the U.S., where I lived for uh, many years. I went to school there, went to college. Um, had some experience after that, uh, doing my grad school in Europe. And then I went off to, to do some interesting work related to global relations and international trade. And I see that uh, historically you've worked as a consultant on trade intelligence and you also head up the investment team at Sidera. So for our listeners who may not know what trade intelligence is, but would probably love to know, can you explain to us a bit about it and where it fits? Yeah, uh, 
it's not as simple as, um, you know, I would like to say that I'm an economist or I'm a lawyer and, you know, that'll be pretty much the end of the conversation. Um, what we do actually on a daily basis is we, we try to use, uh, actually for the benefit of, of, of everyone, um, we try to use the rules that countries have agreed uh, upon with respect to how they should behave with each other, each other uh, as far as global trade goes. And in, in, in that space, um, we end up doing quite a lot of work for governments and, and industry associations and multinational corporations from around the world, trying to gain access to what sometimes uh, can be complex environments. That's a little bit of what we do here. And I understand you do a lot of work in what's known as dumping. In the UK, that means something totally different to what it means in the trade world. Uh, over here, dumping means some blokes turn up in a battered out old van and tip a load of knackered fridge freezers into a farmer's field. <laughs> but for, for our grown-up listeners who are involved in trade, what does dumping and anti-dumping mean? It's um, In general terms, it's a horrible terminology. I think it, it means some weird stuff in different places. Um, dumping is when it's the practice of selling a product at a foreign market at a lower uh, price than at your home market. In very simple terms, that, that, that's what it is. And it's uh, a practice that, you know, it's a lot more common than we would expect. But uh, it's a practice that a lot of multinational corporations uh, do it in order to gain market share and pretty much kick out smaller players from the market. And in the long run, that provides a huge benefit, of course, by being a, a, a monopoly in whichever market you're um, doing these kinds of practices. So it, it's something that it's not acceptable within the boundaries of international trade law. And it's something that, you know, every country in the world can actually impose um, restrictions and, and, um, and try to work uh, for, for these kinds of practices not to happen. So how would you monitor that and how would you prevent it? Is there a, a, some sort of negotiation that goes on or, or do you enforce laws? Is there any kind of multilateral agreement that people sign up to when it comes to uh, fair price for their products? How, how do you enforce that? Well, the enforcement in international trade, uh, per se, it, it is just as difficult as any kind of international uh, reg regulation. The problem with um, implementing anything at a global level is that you don't have a global police. You know, you do have, uh, maybe this is not the best example because you do have NATO but in, in, in other arenas um, around the world, in other subjects such as trade, you know, it, it's kind of difficult to enforce laws when countries do not respect those laws. But when you're talking about uh, trade laws, um, they're actually quite advanced because, um, you know, the world has been able to come to an understanding and, and work through what is known the World Trade Organization, uh, where you have a set of rules and standards 
that countries uh, have agreed uh, and where they have to follow, where you know you can actually implement these global restrictions. And a lot of the national policies that at the end of the day impact the lives of everyone uh, are a reflection of what has been agreed on a global level in forums like the WTO. So, you know, the enforcement of laws like, you know, in, in, in the scale of uh, trade between countries, they are done uh, pretty much by the WTO and by the rules that the members of the WTO have agreed. And when a country doesn't respect those rules, they're taken to court. And the way it works, uh, it's pretty much like the internal legal system of a country where you have the lower courts and then you have the higher courts for for cases that you know eventually reach uh, that level. And in the WTO, you have the same thing. Well, at least you used to have that before, you know, the... I, I don't think that the point here is to talk about specific countries, but, you know, uh, you have countries like the United States right now where they are flexing their muscles around the world and trying to impose their ways, and the WTO is no different. So at the current, um, as we speak, the WTO is actually on a, on a hold. So there's no cases being uh, taken to the WTO because, you know, just to summarize it, the higher courts have to be, um, the, the, the judges for the higher courts of the WTO, they have to be um, indicated by, by the country members and they have to be decided in consensus. So if one country doesn't agree, you don't have, um, you don't have, you don't reach. What we have right now is a, a uh, the United States has put a stop on everything. They don't agree on anything until everything is changed. So right now we don't have a global court for trade issues. And so there's no enforcement. In, in our daily work, the way that we monitor is pretty much by using our network of um, connections. So we, we pretty much have connections uh, with is, people that... Is that a, sorry to interrupt you. Just, is that a delicate way of saying informants? Yes. 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 No, so yes. don't be shy about it because it yeah. is an intelligence focus. Yeah. Okay. So, so you have sources, human sources? Yes, we do have human sources uh, all over the world. Um, some places are more active than others. And the way it works is we, we, ha- we are usually tipped off, uh, you know, a couple of months before something could happen. Uh, an investigation could be imposed by a country. And this is how we start our work, you know, usually um, working on this kind of information. And we reach out to companies, we explain. Usually the big companies and the governments, they are very well aware of the impact of uh, such measures. Uh, Sometimes, uh, you know, even very large multinational corporations don't know how to handle situations uh, like this. Uh, So we try to explain to them. And, And this is how we go about uh, fighting for a world with free trade. The few examples I know from collaborating with you and also having the honor of being your representative in Tel Aviv, the few investigations I heard about were federal Brazilian investigations, not the WTO. Now, what, what interest or why does a multinational supplier have to comply being summoned to an investigation 
which is not criminal as far as I understand. No, it's and an administrative proceeding. Yeah. So, so why should they collaborate? I mean, from Russia, collaborate to be called to to court in Brazil? Why yeah. should they be collaborating? That that's actually a very good question. And even though you know, to to the minds of uh, the experts, it could be very straightforward, but to the businessman, sometimes it's not. Uh, in general terms, uh, of course, the, the, it is a national uh, case. Usually, this anti-dumping investigations happens on a national level, uh, meaning that countries initiate an investigation. So, for instance, Brazil could initiate an investigation on a specific product coming from Israel or from Europe or England or uh, in, any other um, origin for that, for that matter. The basis of the application is, as I mentioned, the international trade law, which is set forth by the WTO. Now, the, the impact on the daily lives of these businesses is very simple uh, because it, it, it hurts where it hurts the most in the pocket. And it, it is usually translated on surcharges when the product enters into a country. So if um, the Brazilian government, for instance, has the suspicion, either because they have the suspicion that a product is being dumped into Brazil or because, and this is a lot of the cases, a local company uh, petitions the government to initiate a case against foreign uh, exporters because they have suspicions of dumping, the, at the end of the day, what that will do is pretty much uh, reflect on, on the cost of importing that product into the country. So, you know, let's say if you're importing gem uh, into Brazil from England and the import duty on that is 10%, uh, if there is an anti-dumping investigation, if the company doesn't comply, they might be facing an increased uh, import duty to uh, maybe the level of 50%, 60%, which pretty much, uh, would result in seizing and, and closing operations uh, and, and, and stopping ex exports into that, that country. Uh, there's no way to compete with other exports that, that don't face the same kind of kinds of taxes. This happens on a daily basis on all kinds of products you can imagine. Anything from frozen potatoes to cars to uh, anything that you could possibly imagine, uh, it happens on a daily basis. And, and to, to our um, knowledge and, and the experience over the years have taught us that this is actually uh, used as a commercial strategy for a lot of very clever global uh, companies. So I just want to add that to what, from what I've seen working with Sidera, um, they have preventive intelligence in the case that, in the sense that uh, they can advert their clients months before an investigation as such is going on. And of course, their interest is to represent them. And if, as a legal office here, they represent this company, they have a huge uh, rate of success because of, of all their knowledge and all the connections here. So uh, that's, that's where Sidera is very different because as he once mentioned in the call here, it's all legal, it's all uh, on the table. There's no bribes, there's no suitcases changing hands. It's just a lot of knowledge in law and a lot of connections. 
in the way that they can force the practically force the federal government here to not impose extra taxes on these companies. And it shows them how legally they can avoid that. No, you're absolutely right. Um, the idea, and, and I'm sorry if, it, if I sounded a little obscure, the way that we perform our work is very straightforward. We usually combine very uh, bright minds and, and we provide the government, not just in Brazil, but in, in quite a lot of countries where we uh, are present, with the necessary knowledge, um, you know, as far as economic analysis, uh, legal analysis, uh, and doing a government interface with them by telling them how they can actually do the job that they want to do it. Uh, our uh, effort at the end of the day is to provide the government officials with the necessary tools for them to, to do what they they, they do on a daily basis, uh, which is to work on the interests of, of the, the general population. So these products that are coming into the country, that are being exported, are they products which wouldn't normally be manufactured in Brazil, for instance? So say, let's, uh, as an example, um, I don't know, stainless steel products. You know, the, the UK used to be quite, quite famous for its stainless steel. So if we were importing those products into Brazil... Are there other companies in Brazil that would make the same product and then would pick up on the fact that this other company was selling them cheaper than it would be if it was homemade? Is that how it works? Uh, that's um, a lot of the cases are actually born out of that kind of necessity. And, you know, international trade law do take into account the need for local industries to be protected. Okay, I'm not, um, I hope I, I, I'm not um, passing the message that global trade is at the cost of everything and, and everyone. By no means. Uh, the, all countries have the right to protect infant industries, industries that are going through a tough time. Um, but of course, there has to be within the boundaries of what is fair, right? Uh, it can be, um, that can be done to the cost of the whole population, right? Mm. At the end of today, uh, the day, the, the whole population of the UK shouldn't be, um, you know, paying uh, so much money for an orange juice just because there's maybe one producer in England that would like to produce oranges when it doesn't make any sense to produce oranges in, in the UK. So um, it, it is born of, out of that kind of necessity, but the interesting situations are actually when, and the very complex ones, are when companies uh, try to use anti-dumping practices, uh, as I said, as a commercial strategy. So when they do that, there is um, there could be so many things behind that it might be impossible to, to put a, a direct connection like that. Uh, it could be something that was thought out on a global scale. Maybe a company, uh, and, and I'll give you the example of, uh, uh, of a steel company that, you know, that we represent. And the way that it worked was that you know, they, they were pretty much having to defend themselves on a domino uh, effect. Uh, they didn't protect their, their, their market in one specific country. 
Then another country looked at the behavior and the producers in that country looked at the behavior of the investigation. And because nothing was done, you know, they initiated an investigation in that second market as well. And when this company realized what was happening, they pretty much lost 75% of their global market. Wow, so this 75%. Is, yes, yes. So this is actually uh, something that could, could, at the end of the day, if it's not taken uh, seriously, uh, it could turn into something very ugly for global companies. And I would assume with a, a, a pandemic that we're in the middle of right now, this kind of thing is going to be even more important than it, it was before. Have you seen an increase in this kind of thing? Oh, yeah. Uh, there has been a huge increase in the number of cases. Countries are, are turning inwards. Uh, so you're starting to see disputes between countries where you didn't used to see. For, for example, uh, you know, there's disp trade disputes between China and Australia. Uh, you know, bad diplomatic relations ended up resulting in, in some very nasty uh, investigations that it doesn't make any sense in, in, in the everyday uh, dealings between the countries. But when you look at it from the diplomatic standpoint, because of uh, Australia's uh, stance uh, siding with the United States uh, with regards to, you know, the suspicions of where the coronavirus came from, uh, the way that China retaliated and the way they are retaliating right now against Australia is by imposing investigations on products such as Australian wine, which is, uh, you know, the, the Chinese market for Australian wine. It is, of course, very, very relevant. And this is just one simple example of, um, you know, how things are, are scaling up. But uh, but the, the the current scenario is is very tense between countries, no doubt. Yes, yeah, that's, that's really interesting that you've mentioned that. I mean, in in the UK, there's been um, a rise through various groups to promote not buying products from China, for instance. And if you go onto you know the usual suspects like Amazon, and you're scrolling through a product, the first thing. A lot of people are doing nowadays is they're seeing is it manufactured in China and Amazon now putting on their uh, seller websites, the seller pages, a union jack and a little kind of a caveat that says this product is manufactured in, in Great Britain. But when you dig a bit deeper, you actually find out that the, the warehouse is in Great Britain, but the product is still being manufactured in China. And it's coming into the UK as a UK product, but it's not. It's Chinese. So have you seen anything like that in Brazil where it's, it's marketed as a Brazilian product, but it's actually coming in from another country? Oh, yeah. We see that on a daily basis. Uh, yeah, so many, so many examples, Jim. When you get to the marketing, I, I tend to, to believe that, you know, that's actually fair game. Uh, the problem that, that that we see is actually, uh, you know, when it gets to the point of unfair competition. I'll give you a very simple example, and it's something that countries do every day. You know, when, when we talk about dumping um, uh, practices, that's very straightforward. 
But when we talk about standards, uh, that's a whole nother game. And this is something that, you know, countries uh, may change uh, standards on anything that you can think, you know, the uh, basic standard for, you know, the, the milk that is sold on the stores, you know, or as we have here in Brazil a couple of years ago, you know, out of, um, you know, nowhere, the government changed the electric plugs here in Brazil. So Brazil has a very different uh, electric plug than anywhere else in the world. And this is a very simple and subtle example of a basic standard that at the end of the day, people don't think too much about it, but it has a huge impact on business. Meaning, you know, if you're a local company um, complaining, co complying with local standards and regulations and you produce your products according to the local rules, it's one thing. But if you're a global company exporting your product and you have to adjust standards for every single market, then it's something that it bears impossible, you know. And production changes and everything. Exactly. Uh, and, and so at the end of the day, this is this is done quite a lot via local lobby. So it's something that the local industry will lobby uh, the local government for changes like that. And these are simple changes that at the end of the day have, have no explanation, no you know, common sense, but ends, ends up imposing uh, a huge barrier and, and pretty much closing the market for for global companies. So that's really interesting. I mean, it's a it's a bit of a revelation for our listeners when we hear about the global impact. I mean, we, we have a, a pandemic. We're talking about the global impact of a pandemic. But what we don't realize is a global impact of, of trade and fair trade. So so what you've said to us there, Diego, has been really insightful and, and very useful to our, our listeners. Um, we, we have a, a kind of a mixed bag of, of listeners around the world, not just in the intelligence community. We have um, people that do due diligence for big corporate entities. We have uh, investors who are looking at their own intelligence when it comes to conducting investments or, or, or buying into a company or investing in, in a, whatever it might be around the world. So one question I, I, I have for you, and this is based on uh, many years of investigating, personally, of investigating countless investment frauds. And these can range from land deals in Mexico to Ponzi schemes in New York. One thing that I have seen, which is a regular pattern, is a general lack of on-the-ground due diligence. So I'll give you an example. I mean, years ago, I investigated um, a land deal in Argentina, and this land deal, that when you looked at the brochures, it looked fantastic. You know, you just wanted to give them money. Um, it showed glamping and lovely vineyards where you could make your own Malbec. Um, but I basically had to, uh, I had the most horrendous journey to go, go to this place in Argentina. I had to fly, fly to Miami, even. I caught another flight to Argentina. And then from Argentina, and I had to catch a train up into uh, Mendoza. And then I had to get a cab from Mendoza to this piece of land in the middle of nowhere, right on the foot of the Andes. And it was it was a swamp, 
they hadn't even drained the water off the land. I mean, it, it was great if you wanted to uh, live in a tent there, and, and but it certainly didn't have glamping and fantastic hotels and magnificent Malbec vineyards. Um, and I also investigated an investment scheme in New York where the, the client that I was representing at the time met the company at uh, Trump Towers, would you believe, uh, over in Wall Street. And uh, this client had their photos taken in the company's office and they had a big stars and stripes in the background and it all looked very professional. But after their money disappeared, I was asked to go over to New York to investigate this, which I did. And the first thing I did was I went to Trump Towers and I spoke to the receptionist and asked her about the company. She'd never heard of them. But then when we dug a bit deeper, we found out that this company just rented the office for two hours. So if I was a company looking at setting up shop in Brazil, or if I had tons of money and I was looking to invest in Brazil, what advice would you give our listeners, Diego? Well, <laughs> where where to start, Jim? Um, you know, Brazil... I think Google, Google's probably the normal start, isn't it? But that's just an absolute waste of time. Yeah, uh, I, I think Google is, you know, has uh, it's an incredible uh, tool, and, and there's so much information there. But in real life, the only thing is, the only thing is with Google, and I mean, I've been doing this now for best part of 32 years, and I find that I mean, we didn't have the internet in my day. You know, you had to you had to get off your feet and and go and speak to people, whichever country it was. But um, but I find with the internet now, it's so easy to manipulate it, and you can set yourself up a registered company. You can have a website, and this is something I always say to my clients. I say to them, "What convinced you to give them the money? You know, what convinced you to give them millions and millions of dollars?" And they say the same thing every time. They say, well, we did a, a Google search. We, we saw they had a website, a registered company. Uh, they gave us a personal guarantee. Um, I met the guy. So I say, okay, where did you meet the guy? I met him in the hotel lobby. Right. Did you go to his place of work and see hundreds of people all slaving away? Um, no. So in essence, that person has invested maybe $200 by building a website and registering a company to convince you, and he's probably paid for the tea in the lobby of a hotel as well, but to convince you to give him two, three, four, fifty million dollars whatever it might be. So if you could give us some steer, Diego, as to the best kind of advice you give, if I was looking at, let's just say, for instance, in my dreams, if I was a multimillionaire who had money to, to burn and I wanted to invest in, in Brazil and I came to you as a client, what advice would you give me? Well, the first thing, Jim, I, I will, I'll tell you to find, you know, reliable and serious uh, partners that actually know how the country works. Uh, this is a lesson that, unfortunately, uh, as your experience has taught you, it's something that you only learn sometimes when you have to go through difficult uh, experiences, right? And, you know, you're talking about very developed countries like the United States. You also mentioned Argentina, which is, you know, similar to Brazil. 
But I think the most uh, important thing is to find uh, a reliable partner that can provide you with, uh, with solid information, with solid data, uh, and help you understand the local market. Okay? Um, we have spoken uh, here quite a bit about complex trade negotiations and deals and, 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 um, and cases, but on a daily basis, the day-to-day -day activities of companies are more simple uh, in terms that, you know, the companies are worried about selling their product. They want to go and, 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 and reach out new markets. But in, in the hurry to do things like that, they sometimes don't spend uh, the resources that they have to spend to, to really be, um, you know, able to take advantage of being in places like Brazil. Um, Brazil is a rather complex place. Um, there is uh, a lot of opportunities, a lot of very serious and reliable companies. But, you know, if you go about uh, doing your business only through the Internet, uh, you are pretty much setting yourself for failure. Uh, I would say that, you know, you have to be on the ground. You have to understand the regulations and the culture. Uh, you have to know how to do business in a place like Brazil. Because the same way that, you know, you have, you know, the way that people do business in the UK, uh, it's different from the way that people do business in other countries in Europe. And when you bring to the Brazilian context, it's even more so, right? So I would, you know, the first thing I would say is to find uh, a reliable partner that helps you understand the local market for whatever that it is that you're trying to sell. If it's a service, if it's a product, you need to understand the steps that you have to go through to be able to access this, this huge market that is Brazil and, and Latin America. I want to say just a few things. Um, first of all, I want to say that uh, the local partner that you mentioned, you wouldn't say it, but uh, what I think the best local partner anybody could seek is Sidera, the company that Diego and Carolina run, because they do an objective study, objective study of the market, and they look for the loopholes to access the market. And I want to say, from my personal knowledge, I know Diego for 12 years. I was stationed here in Brazil. Uh, like 12 years ago in a company that tried to do some business here and the owners of the company, I was directing the company, the owners of the small company didn't want to accept that uh, we need a local partner. Uh, fortunately, I met uh, Diego back there. He sent us a huge leap forward just because he, he knows the culture, he knows the rules, he knows the laws and it saved the company eventually a lot of money and time. That's one thing I want to say. Another thing I want to say about the internet is that it's resembling a little bit to the, if you ever studied Kabbalah, there are courses of the ancient Kabbalah wisery now, they always talk about the 99% uh, reality and the 1% reality. And they say that the 1% reality is what we actually perceive, and the 99% is what we don't perceive unless we go deeper. So I would say the Google is that 1% and the rest is, you know, actual groundwork or connections or investigations or anything you can imagine. You cannot just count on Google. So, Jim, if, if I can use these few moments to host Johnny with you, okay, I will help uh, with the English also. 
Johnny or with his real name, João Batista de Oliveira Lima Neto, and I'm not making that up, right? That's right. <laughs> João Batista de Oliveira Lima Neto. And uh, so Johnny is a guy I also met. I was here in Brazil, as I told you, between 2007 and 2009, I was here in Brazil. And I met a, a bunch of great guys. Uh, one of them is Diego and the other is Johnny. And Johnny is a special forces veteran from the army here and also a top martial artist. So but what I mean by that, he spent his whole young life studying and competing in Kung Fu and kickboxing. He was a, a Brazilian champion. And then he later went to learn some more sophisticated martial arts. And when I got to meet him was when I was heading a, a group of bodyguards here. I think I told you in my podcast. And uh, for this group of bodyguards, I look for something sophisticated to train them. And I stumbled in a gym. I stumbled in on a system. It's a local system. Joao was one of the top instructors there. And I tried it as a gym, just as a gym associate. I liked it. And I took them to, uh, I hired them to teach the, this group of bodyguards. And I joined them in the practices. But later we did some operative work together. And I can tell you that if shit hits the fans or whatever, that's the man you want to have next to you. He's lethal. But he's very, very relaxed. He has an extreme mental power also, not only physical. And um, actually right now, I mean, uh, and, uh, and Johnny is our backup. Whenever we go now into the dangerous areas, we take him with us. And just having us, having him with us makes us feel so good that we know that if anything happens, uh, Johnny is with us. And I think as an operative, it's very important to have someone to look at your back. We often talk about, you know, giving covert security or, or normal security to others, but we also need to feel secure. And when we feel secure, we act better. We are more relaxed. We, our judgment is better. So that's, I had the pleasure of working the last two weeks here with Johnny on my side. And so um, without further ado, uh, you can ask Johnny anything you want. And uh, if if uh, he needs translation, I'm here to translate. Please go on. So, Johnny, first, I have a whole host of questions for you. But the first question I have talking about um, stomping around the favelas and having people's backs. Has Oren given you one of his baseball caps? Yes, I did. I just gave him. And, <laughs> we're gonna, and actually, we're going to have a practice where he's going to teach us some techniques with it. Uh, we couldn't do it yesterday, but we will do it in the next few days. So basically, in the last episode, if you haven't listened to it, we um, we were talking about a program in the UK called Peaky Blinders. Yeah. And it's how Orin had watched it on Netflix during the lockdown. So I decided to go to the Peaky Blinders website and send him an original Peaky Blinders hat, which he's wearing right now, which I'm very happy to see. Yeah. Uh, and it's a hat from it's it's basically based on a series in the UK, uh, in a, a place called Birmingham, where they all talk with a funny accent. And it was about a hundred years ago when the most notorious gangs get their name Peaky Blinders from having razor blades in the peaks of their hats. So in return, Oren sends me a very kind gift, which was um, held up in customs for weeks. Due to it being something only the only way I can describe it is an Israeli version of a Peaky Blinders hat, which has, I suppose, 
what you would call knuckle dusters in the peak. But it's not really knuckle dusters. It's more of a, a defensive tool that you can whip out and, and give somebody a hiding. So I assume, Johnny, that you need a bit more than a peaky blinders hat to travel around and work in the favelas. A favela tem muitas pessoas normais, trabalhadores, pessoas... A maioria das pessoas que moram na favela são pessoas boas. Eles aproveitam da, do sistema da favela, da dificuldade de acesso para esconder a máfia que existe aqui no Brasil, a violência que aproveita da favela como um escudo para se esconder. Então, uh, se você não sabe o comportamento, não sabe como entrar ou sair, pode ser que você se coloque em risco. Mas, definitivamente, não é um local assim de risco extremo, a não ser que você não saiba uh, entrar ou sair. Né? Isso é se você sabe o comportamento das pessoas, você consegue perceber as pessoas que são ligadas ao crime, você se envolver com elas, realmente você vai ter um grande problema, porque lá a segurança pública não tem como te proteger e, nesse aspecto, sim, você estaria se colocando em risco. Mas sabendo entrar, sabendo selecionar visualmente essas pessoas, sabendo se colocar, é um local de acesso a pessoas boas também. Ok, let me translate. Unless you understood everything, Jim. <laughs> I didn't understand a jot. <laughs> Please translate. All, all of our listeners right now are, are thinking, are I need Google to get myself a linguaphone and learn the language. Please, yeah. if you can remember all of that, Oren, translate. Yeah, yeah, I can remember because we've been talking about it for days. He's been relaxing us. So we went into what is like a favela here. It's, it's a light favela. It's something between what's called here a periferia and a favela for investigation. It's like a upgraded favela because they have now normal roads and not just dirt roads. But but basically the human the human there the human scenery is like a favela. So in, what he says is that in a favela most people are just hardworking, honest people. What the mafia or the organized crime used in the favela, they they take advantage of it being a hard access for the police forces to the favela. It's a long, upwinding road to go into the favela. Units like the Bopi or the Goi, which is the, the equivalent of the Bopi here. And we'll talk about it in a few minutes if you want. These are units of the police which are very good in fighting, but are very bad, I must say, in sneaking, in undercover work. So in the long and upwinding road they do with their jeeps and their skeletons and everything, that's already my addition, okay? And they will be discovered by so many people there that the, the actual bad people, the organized crime, will have enough time to hide or, or escape. That's what he's saying. And he's also saying that If you go into favela and you know how to behave, Brazilian people are very simple and very kind people. They're very generous people. If you don't offend them highly, they will not react violently. But there is organized crime in the favela, and you have to be careful not to arouse their suspicion or their anger. If you do, you can have 20 Johnnies, and it will be too late. What I meant mm. by feeling safer with Johnny is that He knows the local talk and he knows to be relaxed. And I know that if something begins to happen, I mean, somebody is, you know, just losing his temper with us. Or, uh, Johnny will shut him up before the word spreads uh, in any way. Okay, he will, he will make sure he doesn't go around screaming and shutting up. 
But the basic rule, like I mentioned in my podcast as a, as a guest, is low ego and be polite and be kind. Don't offend anyone unnecessarily. And you will have a higher chance of completing uh, the mission or your stay in the favela. So, mm-hmm. so you mentioned you mentioned Bope. Now, many years ago, some friends of ours from Rio de Janeiro told me to watch a film called Tropa de Elite, which for our listeners, it translates into Elite Squad. Now, anybody who's not seen the film, I, I, I highly recommend you jump on Netflix and, and watch it. It's about an, an elite police squad called the Bope, who, as Oren very eloquently describes, are harder than coffin nails. And it stars an actor called Wagner Moura, who went on to play Pablo Escobar in the Netflix series Narco. And when I watched this film, I was absolutely taken aback by how these Bope guys trained. I mean, they trained hard. I mean, obviously, it's it's made for television, so it might be dramatised a bit more than it really is. But they were brought in to basically sort out crime in the favelas, which, on the face of it, seemed to almost have been overrun. It was a kind of a self-policed no-go zone. But this film was made in 2007. So, so Johnny, bear, bear in mind how long ago this film was made about the Bope. Are the favelas still still like that? Can I, can I translate the question? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. He's asking, da película de Bope, no? Que foi feito faz três anos no Rio de Janeiro, ele falou que ainda, se ainda há favelas, basicamente no Rio, está nascido, há cambiado, e qual é o, qual é o objetivo de Bope nessa favela? É, o Bope tem trabalhos lá, rotineiros ainda, há, há núcleos de, de favelas lá que já estão pacificadas, já possuem policiamento, mas existem algumas ainda que estão sob comando da, das máfias e do crime organizado. Uh, a atuação do BOP basicamente é tirar de circulação uh, pessoas chaves do, do, da, do tráfico de droga, do tráfico de armas apreensão de drogas e apreensão de armas, então eles fazem incursões utilizando um pouco de inteligência, de observação mas eles ainda estão gatinhando muito nessa, nessa questão de inteligência eles usam a uh, Apoio de sniper, apoio de helicóptero e apoio de blindados, além das equipes uh, do pelotão mesmo que, que faz a, a, as ascensões nos morros para fazer as missões, geralmente de apreensão de droga, uh, armas e pessoas chaves do, do crime organizado. Ok, então eu vou traduzir isso. Ele está dizendo, primeiro, comparado com the... First of all, Bopi was filmed in Rio de Janeiro, okay? And Rio de Janeiro, Bopi exists mostly in Rio and, and in Brasilia. In Sao yeah. Paulo, there is no Bopi. There's an equivalent uh, force called GOI, which is Grupo de Operações Especiais, which is of the civil police. But what João is saying that compared to it, many of the favelas in Rio are now more pacificized, pacific, more pacified. Uh, some of them still have a nucleus or of organized crime and trafficking. And what the Bopi usually does, they focus on key elements, you know, like the heads of the, these uh, crime organizations. They either arrest them or kill them. And they, their main focus is to uh, 
prevent or eradicate a little bit the drug trafficking and the armed trafficking, which are a very serious problem in, in all of Brazil. And so when they, when they go here, here they say Escada do Muro. The Muro is a wall and the favelas in the Rio are called walls. So they either go climbing up the walls or use snipers or helicopters. He was also mentioning himself that they're still lacking in the field of covert uh, work and intelligence. They use informants, of course. Some informants are used by threats or force, some in other ways like, uh, you know, money or vengeance. They do use informants, but they do invasions. And these invasions are very violent, very quick. Sometimes they're quick enough to capture who they're looking for. Sometimes they're not. But anyway, they lay a heavy burden on these organizations and they imagine to reduce quite a lot the uh, drug and armed trafficking, which are the two main problems concerning the favelas. So, Johnny, I've got one final question for you. I don't know if you can answer this one in English without or in translating at all. But um, I'm really interested to know, and I think our listeners are going to be interested to know, where did you learn your craft? How did you get it into this field of work? I know Oren said that you're ex-Special Forces. So so where did it start? Well, uh, I start uh, with a uh, scout group. I'm a boy scout. <laughs> and uh, I live in, uh, in the periphery of Sao Paulo. And this kind uh, of city I, I born, I see many things. And I have a lot of people for the rich people and the poor people, and I live in the middle of that. And because of that, I have uh, some uh, experiences in my life, and I, I can hit the people. I can, I can uh, know about the, the intention of the people. I, I believe mm. this kind of sensibility helped me to do this job. Yeah, I, if I can add, I mean, maybe he doesn't want to elaborate. Uh, well, Johnny grew up in a quite hard neighborhood. It wasn't a favela. It's a suburb here called uh, San Bernardo do Campo, yeah. which is a, a place where most of Johnny's friends, as he mentioned to me when we were talking yesterday, uh, turned to crime. Uh, Johnny was a good athlete for, from being young, so he was chosen by a Kung Fu trainer to be competitive. And then he dedicated many years into martial arts. Then he served a few years in the army in a special unit that has to do with crime. Most of the Brazilian enemies are within, not without. They don't, they're not in war uh, currently with any country. And after leaving the army, he continued uh, his experiments, I, I mean, his expertise in various martial arts. He's also a jungle survival instructor and a driving, tactical driving instructor, instructor. and a shooting and firearms instructor in a very high level. I can tell you, I'm an Israeli and we always thought we are the best until I saw Joao. So it's, it's another level, really completely another level. And, uh, and so he's a multi-expert, he's a Leonardo da Vinci of these crafts, and you can feel the potential. I mean, he's not a violent person but you don't want to be on his violent side. So uh, gladly I know him and uh, gladly I have him next to me here in, in this mission and I had him before in other missions. He also came to Israel because I, can I tell about the Krav Maga? Yes. Um, 
the, the one of the Krav Maga in, uh, organization in Israel was looking for a local representative, and I offered João, and João is now also a representative of one of the biggest Krav Maga uh, federations in Brazil. Um, for him, doing the Krav Maga instructor's course was like, you know, having tea. Uh, but uh, he did it respectfully, very respectfully, and uh, and now he's a representative of uh, one of his commercial uh, doing series, the representative of this uh, system of Krav Maga. If anything you really need in Brazil or anywhere else, you need to feel protected. And he also knows a lot about security because he, he did mostly overt, not, not so much covert, but mostly overt security missions he did all over the world. Uh, so he, yeah, you can you can count on him for a lot of things. Basically, if I come over to Brazil, if I'm an investor, then I speak with Diego. But if I want to go out of the town, then the one person I want by my side is Johnny. I can tell you more than that. If you come late at night to Diego's office, maybe Johnny should accompany you. No, just, yeah, yeah, I think the yeah um, Johnny has been uh, you know accompanying me here now and in other missions, and it's also it's not only the the feeling safe thing, it's also the feeling relaxed. And now I believe that in mostly in covert uh, operations like investigations or covert security, the more safe you feel, the more time you have until you're discovered. Because if you're tense, your tense, uh, your tensity is reflecting, and and people will turn around to look at you even if they didn't see you. If you feel relaxed because you have Johnny on your side then you can be relaxed for a longer period of time and you can do covert work for a longer period of time. All I can say to our listeners is if knowing Oren, if Oren needs a bodyguard, then Johnny must be harder than a coffin nail. And yeah. if anybody is anybody's listening to us right now who's thinking of going to Brazil, I suppose the only caveat we put on this is Brazil's a lovely place to go to. It's a fantastic holiday destination. And although we've been talking about favelas, it's not a place I would be right in thinking, which is of uh, of high crime and kidnap and the usual things when you when you're in Brazil. I guess if you if you stray off a path, something may happen. If you if you end up in the favelas, then you need to be speaking to your taxi driver or your chauffeur to find out how you ended up in there. But the best advice I can give to anybody is speak to Oren or speak to Johnny. And they'll make sure that you have a, a very safe and very enjoyable time when you're in Sao Paulo. But if you're thinking of going over there for business and you're not sure about the business environment, you're not sure about the landscape or local protocols, or even if you want due diligence conducting or, or just good, solid legal advice, then you need to speak to Diego. Well, I'll put a, a link up to his website. Uh, for anybody who's listening right now who's, who's doing work in Brazil or is contemplating doing work in Brazil, please, by all means, reach out to Diego. From what we've heard tonight, it's pretty obvious to us we'd all be in safe hands with Diego, and we'd be in extremely safe hands with Johnny, uh, especially if he's wearing one of Orin's baseball caps. That would make him twice as hard as he as he is right now. <clears throat> well, I, well I, I did hear a rumour that Joao caught covid and COVID had to go into self-isolation for two weeks. So <laughs> when is the next uh, season of Peaky Blinders? Will there be one? 
Yeah, there is going to be one, actually. Uh, exciting news. There's going to be a new season of, of Peaky Blinders coming out. I think we got to the point where, um, I can't remember the guy's name now, but the head of the Peaky Blinders became an MP. Oh. Tommy Shelby, Tommy Shelby. Tommy, Tommy Shelby, thank you. Tommy Shelby became an MP, which makes you realise he's become an even more of a criminal than he was before. Um, and there's, a, there's a new season coming out, so maybe the next season will all be about Tommy Shelby fiddling his expenses. Um, who knows what could be in store for us with the next season of Peaky Blinders. But um, I'd just like to, to wrap up now and say thank you to all of our guests tonight. It's been an absolutely amazing podcast. Usually I'd, I'd do a lead into next week's podcast, but I'm going to leave all of our listeners in suspense, which basically means uh, I don't know who's joining us next week. We could be in Africa. We could be in Mexico. We could be back in Sao Paulo. Who knows? But wherever it will be, it's going to be awesome. So finally, thank you to all of our listeners. I love checking the stats on our podcast and seeing all the different countries where our listeners are. We've got people in Africa listening to us. We've got lots and lots of people in Israel. It must be all of Oren's family that are listening to us. We've got um, Sao Paulo, Washington, West Virginia, which makes me a bit nervous because that's the home of the the CIA. Um, Yeah, so I love listening to the stats. Please keep listening to us. Please keep subscribing. You can hear us on... Uh, Spotify, you can hear us on Google, you can probably hear us on Alexa, although Alexa's probably listening to us right now. Uh, and if you have any suggestions or if you have any feedback or if indeed you want to be a guest on the show, then please drop me an email at acumenandperspicacity at gmail.com. And we seriously need to rethink the name of this podcast. It's time to sign off. And in time on a tradition, I'd say it's good night from me. Good night. And it's good night from Oren. Good night. It's good night from Diego. Good night, Jim. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Diego. And finally, it's good night from Brazil's Chuck Norris. Good night, Johnny. <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. Good night. You've got to say it in your home language. It sounds much better. Yeah, good night. Good night, Jimmy. Muito obrigado. Oh, that sounds a lot better. Flashbacks to Bope in Chopper. Route.